From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is The Morning Edition. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. It's Thursday, February 15th. By the time you listen to this, Indonesia likely has a new president. Its much-anticipated election was on Wednesday. And who takes over Indonesia, the world's third largest democracy, after 10 years of relative democratic harmony under the hugely popular President Joko Widodo, should give us all pause. Today, international and political editor Peter Harcher on whether the new leader might return Indonesia to the bad old days when it was run by a fierce dictator, and what this could mean for Australia if they did. So, Peter, by the time people listen to this, Indonesia should have a new president. But to start with, can you briefly tell me about the outgoing president, Joko Widodo, and how instrumental he's been to our well-being here in Australia? Sure, Samantha. Well, Joko Widodo, universally known as Jokowi in Indonesia, he's a pretty remarkable success story in global politics because he started as a pretty much a nobody. He'd been a, a mayor, city mayor in Indonesia. Uh, But he was just an everyman, an ordinary Javanese guy who'd started his furniture manufacturing business, wasn't part of a dynasty, wasn't wealthy, and he wasn't really in control of his own destiny either because he was really a puppet, I suppose, of one of the big dynasties in Indonesian politics, and that was the Suharto family and Suharto's daughter, Megawati Sukarno Putri, who plonked him in at the head of her party's ticket. He was called the smiling general, Haji Mohammed Sahato, feared by many, admired by some. Protests soon gained momentum, and after three decades of dictatorship and months of turmoil, Sahato was forced out of power in May 1998. Over time, he's made a pretty remarkable transition to become a real power. He's been re-elected, so he's now serving the end of his second five-year term, and he can do no wrong. According to the Indonesian public, he, he, can, he can walk on water, essentially. Um, to answer the second part of your question, going back to Indonesian independence in 1949 from the Dutch, Indonesia has been the place of dark fears and nightmares for Australian strategists and governments in Canberra, which they don't talk about a lot, but it, it was. It was seen to be a place ripe for instability, perhaps communist takeover, and then later for uh, Muslim extremism a place that could be subject to breakup and civil war, all these sorts of things. What has happened is quite the contrary. Since the end of the military dictatorship under Suharto 25 years ago, Indonesia has become, and Jokowi has extended and settled this, a a successful democracy. No generals try to challenge the power. The generals challenge through the ballot box and not from the barracks. Democracy is valued, it's successful, the turnout rates, voting is not compulsory, are consistently 70 to 80%. And Jokowi has assisted that process in a couple of ways. One is the economy. The economy has been his his overriding aim, and in particular, making it work for ordinary people. So his big deal has been uh, encourage investment, a lot of Chinese investment, build infrastructure, uh, transport in particular, help the people improve welfare, payments, jobs, all of that stuff. It's become a stable, successful country that Australian strategists aren't worried about anymore. And their concerns are now have moved further north, of course, to China. But that's been huge. And the other thing is, Jokowi's been well disposed towards Australia. 
he's had a good relationship with his Australian counterparts, Malcolm Turnbull, they were particularly close, and issues which in the past would have blown up the relationship and would have led to a crisis. He's picked up the phone and talked to successive Australian prime ministers, including the current one, Albanese, and they've just dealt with and they have not become crises. So again, it's, it's more like a dog that hasn't barked, problems that haven't emerged, either broadly with Indonesian stability or specifically with the relationship with Australia. But it's been it's been successful. It's been good and been a, a happy story. And the trajectory between the two countries is on the up. And there's one candidate who's all but guaranteed to be named Jokowi's successor. So can you tell me about him? Well, the front runner and the, the man who it would take a calamity now to prevent taking the presidency uh, is a fellow called Proboa, Proboa Subianto. Proboa has been a household name in Indonesia for nearly 40 years because he married the daughter of the former military dictator Suharto, and that propelled him to the the top of the power structure. Uh, And he'd been in the army, he was in the army and the special forces. And Suharto appointed him to be head of the special forces in the Indonesian military. It's called Kopassus. And in that vein, he established a fairly unsavory reputation When the Suharto regime was in its last years, Prabowo became a regime enforcer. There were accusations that he was kidnapping, or his units were kidnapping and murdering demonstrators, dissidents. It was very bleak stuff. He's always denied uh, all of that. He's never been tried for any of that, but he was dismissed as head of uh, the military, and he was banned from the US. The US wouldn't give him a visa to enter the US for many years. This has been a big shadow overhanging him. He was also accused of human rights violations uh, in deployments in East Timor when Indonesia was unhappy that East Timor was getting its independence. So this has been a big thing. Until very recently, older Indonesians and anyone with a memory knows that he was a tough guy, presented as a tough guy. He would thump the table. He's big physically, presents as quite rough and erratic and gruff. And there have been a lot of concerns. So he's run twice before for the presidency. This is his third run. I mean, a lot of concerns internationally that he would get the job because he was seen as uh, a risk to democracy, a possible return to the military strongman type. Uh, He was seen as a violator of human rights and a risk to international relations because he's a very erratic guy. Uh, In previous election campaigns, he's played the race card against ethnic Chinese people, Indonesia, who are um, happen to be the rich merchant class. He's played the Muslim card. He's accused the outgoing president, Jokowi, of not being a real Muslim, of being born in Singapore and all this stuff that's reminiscent of the Obama-Trump stuff. He's played rough. He's played hard. And there have been violence in those previous campaigns. But he's changed. He decided that he was never going to get the presidency with that style of politics. It got him a lot of support and it whipped up a lot of angry, uh, mobilized supporters but it wasn't going to be enough to get him across the line. And so he decided if you can't beat them, join them. Literally, he joined the government of Jokowi, who's accepted him and appointed him as his defence minister, where he's been serving for a few years now. President, known as Jokowi, is super popular in Indonesia, and Prabowo has managed to get Jokowi's son to join his campaign as his running mate. Feeling confident? Feeling confident, yeah. And Prabowo has changed his style completely. Yeah, I believe there's TikToks to prove that, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, he loves to, um, lately, in, in recent times campaigning, he busts moves on TikTok. Indonesians vote for a new president this month, and they're probably going to choose this guy. And the Indonesian Minister of Defence, and Dance. He appeals for the youth vote. He's managed to turn himself into a cute, cuddly figure, believe it or not. 
72-year-old former Special Forces Commander has rebranded as a cute and cuddly grandpa beloved by young Indonesians. This is a transformation and given that most of the electorate in Indonesia is under the age of 40, most of them can't remember uh, his history with Suharto. Many don't even know. This is an extraordinary transformation and rebranding and he's pulled it off and he, he is by far a front runner. Okay, so as you've mentioned, Prabowo is, like you said, it would take a calamity really for him not to clinch this presidency. But how authentic, I guess, is that rebranding, given that we're talking about a man who was accused of being responsible for the abduction and forced disappearance of pro-democracy activists in the 1990s. I believe 22 were kidnapped, 13 were never found and are presumed dead. So are there concerns that, you know, he could take the country back to the days under Saharto, you know, that this is just uh, a ruse? Uh, yes. and. Those concerns are held in elite Indonesian circles and in international political and policy circles that this could just be a, a superficial change and he could revert at any moment. And he has a history of erraticism and, and a temper. So, yes, those concerns are held uh, and they're, they're real concerns. We can't know. We don't have great visibility of the next 10 years. But based on what we see and hear, he is promising continuity and stability. And it has worked for him. But perhaps the biggest safeguard we have is the Indonesian people, because uh, to do anything that threatened democratic rule, to try to pull a Donald Trump type stunt and overturn a democratic election or install yourself as a dictator would be very unpopular and resisted by the people of Indonesia. They accuse me of doing this and that, a coup plot, abducting activists, killing them, etc. Well, what can I say, huh? This is democracy. If people believe those accusations, simply don't vote for me. So that's probably the best protection against any reversion to uh, a dictatorship to our immediate north, to the country that uh, controls all of Australia's northern approaches, and through which, by the way, 45% of all global commercial shipping travels. So its stability is important, its success is important to Australia, but also the world. And that's probably the best guarantee that that will continue, is that deep commitment that the Indonesian people have shown, having one hard-won democracy from Suharto, now embracing it and believing in it. After the break, what a new Indonesian president might mean for Australians. So, Peter, the Indonesian president will play a big role in shaping the security, trade and diplomacy in an increasingly uncertain Indo-Pacific. So, broadly speaking, what sort of impact is Jokowi's successor likely to have on us? Prabowo knows Australia quite well. He has a history, a checkered history with Australia. When, for example, the Australian military under John Howard's prime ministership and with a UN mandate went in to help East Timor, separate itself from Indonesia's grasp and establish its independence. Prabowo was involved in the Indonesian military's attempts to undercut that and to try and keep some control over East Timor. So that was a conflict point. That was a flashpoint with the Australian military and the Australian political system. So he has that history, but he also has a history of uh, intimate contact with the Australian military, the Australian military has a long history of military-to-military -military relations with Indonesia, and through that channel, he's very familiar with, with Australia. In recent years, as Defence Minister, for example, he's been uh, very friendly 
to Australia. He's opened negotiations with Australia for a new defence treaty. So that's been a positive recent experience of Prabowo towards Australia. And he has promised to continue every one of Jokowi's programs. He has made that commitment again and again and again because he wants to inherit the mantle of Jokowi's popularity. And, I mean, if, if it's working, if the economy is growing and the people are happy with the outcomes, why break it? So he is promising to hold all, all of that together, and that would include the improving trade and investment links with Australia. And in Australia, we now have two federal cabinet ministers who speak Bahasa Indonesia, which is a, which is a first. Uh, Chris Bowen, the Minister for Energy and Climate Change, and um, Penny Wong, the, the foreign affairs minister. So that doesn't hurt. And so I wanted to ask you about something that you've just written, which I find really interesting, which is as you've just taken us through, who becomes Indonesia's president actually has a huge impact on us. So why do so few of us pay attention then about what happens there? <laughs> Great question. Well, we pay attention to Bali, which you know many holidaying Australians apparently go there without even realising it is part of a country called Indonesia. They, they think Bali exists in some, you know, bubble uh, afloat, unanchored, untethered to any nation state, apparently. It's partly a cultural thing. Australians in, in, in our popular culture have never paid attention to Indonesia. There was a move in the 80s and 90s uh, getting school kids in Australia uh, taught the language, Bahasa Indonesia. That's fallen by the wayside. There was uh, a great deal of expertise embedded in Australian universities about Indonesia, taking Indonesia very seriously. That's withered a bit as well. So this is a bit sad, but one of the underlying reasons is that because Indonesia has settled into becoming a stable and reasonably successful nation, state, democracy, economy, it's now projected, by the way, to become the world's fourth biggest economy over the next 20, 25 years. Because it hasn't presented problems, crises and dramas in recent years, Australians have paid less attention to it. You know, Paul Keating used to say, if anything went wrong with Indonesia in a big way, Australia would have to double its share of defence spending to try and protect itself from an unstable Indonesia. If Indonesia goes wrong for Australia, not much else would matter. Uh, it's perhaps the one country where the US would never intervene against in protection of Australian interests. Australia, over the last uh, 70 years, has asked three times, has asked various US presidents to come to Australia's assistance in various clashes with Indonesia on every occasion. The US has turned Australia down. It's a really vital element of Australian national existence. But as I say, because it's been going well and getting better, it's one we've rather short-sightedly overlooked. I mean, it's so interesting what you say there about how pivotal really Indonesia is to, to our safety, really. I mean, should something seriously go wrong there? But you've actually written the opposite as well, which is that we actually should be paying attention because Indonesia's leaders have important lessons to teach us about democracy. So can you just take me through that? That's fascinating. Well, the two standout lessons that any Australian politician or any politician anywhere would, well, first they'd be envious of, and that is Jokowi's remarkable uh, ability to build political capital become more popular. And the secret, it's not really a secret, it's to be approachable, normal, reasonable, low key, and make sure the economy is growing and make sure that benefits flow to ordinary people. Uh, that's, the, that's the formula in a nutshell. Mm. The second is something that we see, especially in the US, the polarization of politics and political opinion and public opinion. But in Indonesia, the remarkable thing is that polarization has rolled back they have undergone what they call depolarization. 
A big part of that has been Prabowo himself, the incoming president, who had decided that polarization was working for him, but not well enough, and has now pulled off this great moderation. Uh, but it, it's been a wider phenomenon where consensus, a national consensus emerged that the things that divide us are less than the things that unite us. We don't like to see these clashes and bitterness. We don't like to see the violence in political campaigning and mobs and all of that stuff and have embraced moderation. So a national consensus to scale down, to ease back, to become moderate is a remarkable thing and a lesson, I think, uh, to the rest of the world that it is possible. Thank you so much, Peter, again for your time. Always a pleasure, Samantha. Today's episode of The Morning Edition was produced by Tammy Mills, with technical assistance by David McMillan. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. The Morning Edition is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. And sign up for our Morning Edition newsletter to receive a comprehensive summary of the day's most important news, analysis and insights in your inbox every day. Links are in the show notes. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. This is The Morning Edition. Thanks for listening.